This morning's scripture reading is from Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, as well as verses 20 through 22. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. That's what the ancients were commended for. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when, he, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Aloha. It feels appropriate for me to say that because I was listening to the laid-back beach music Pandora channel this morning on my way into church. It's one of my favorites this time of year. My name is Josiah. I'm our college minister here at the church. It's so good to be with you to share God's word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the stories of faith that we have explored in Hebrews chapter 11. God, we pray this morning that you would speak to us from the story of Jacob. Would you speak to our hearts, speak to our minds that we might live by faith, that we would be people who trust you and rely not on ourselves, God, that we would be equipped to serve you as your spirit works mightily inside of us. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, even if you and I have never met, I bet we have at least one thing in common. And it's this. I'll bet both of us love to feel like we are in control of the situations of our lives. I don't know about you, but sometimes when my wife and I go out to a restaurant, she'll ask me this question without fail. She'll say, is this seat okay for you when the waitress takes us back to our table? Here's what's going on. My wife knows that I love to see the whole room. I love to see what's going on around me. And if my back is to the rest of the room, I'm just nervous. I mean, I just, you don't know what's going on behind you. So I've got to be in that seat where I can look out and see the room. Then I feel like I'm in control. You know, if somebody at Cracker Barrel wants to try something, they better think twice. Because I've got this under control. <laughs> a few weeks ago, I met a student from our church for lunch. And we went to sit down at a table, and I pulled out my seat to sit. And he said, hey, do you mind if I sit there? I just feel more comfortable when I can see the room and feel like I'm <laughs> in control. And I, you know, I'm happy to accommodate. So I, I said, why don't we switch to another table? And then we could both see the room, you know? <laughs> I guess I'm not as unique as I thought. Don't we all appreciate that feeling of being in control? That's something that we all appreciate, even though we might express it in different ways, huh? Few things can shake me up when moments when I realize I am definitely not in control. Two weeks ago, I was driving and I was stopped at a red light. I'm just camping out this light. The light turns green and I ease across the first lane of traffic. I come into the second lane of traffic and all of a sudden, whoosh, this car comes flying down through this red light. Been red for a few seconds for this person, certainly. Slams off my front bumper, rips off my beautiful IU red license plate. Guys, this could have been really bad. I played by the rules. I did everything right on my end. At least I like to think so. I waited my turn. This person certainly missed that day in elementary school. Just ran right through the middle of that red light. That could have been really bad. That shook me up. I didn't feel comfortable driving for a few days after that one. Have you ever had one of those situations where you really realize, man, life 
is out of my control. Sooner or later, we all have those moments. But here's the thing. I know life is out of my control, but I sure still want to control what I can. I can plan and strategize and stress all day long about ordering those little areas of my life that I feel like I have control, getting those things just perfect, then I can have some rest. Now don't get me wrong, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I've committed my life to him, I trust God, I know he's present in my life, I know that he's powerful to act, but if I'm not actively trusting God in the day-to-day, self-reliance can quickly get the best of me. So we're in a series this summer, Footsteps of Faith, looking at the characters in Hebrews chapter 11. And this morning, we are looking at the life of Jacob. And I believe that this character, he puts that dichotomy on display between trusting God and reliance in self. He puts that on display in a pretty dramatic way. If you were here last week, Bob introduced Jacob. He's the second son of Isaac behind his twin brother Esau. And so in their culture, the firstborn son, he was the one who received the the birthright. He received a double portion of inheritance, a special blessing from the patriarch of the family when he passed away. But in God's complete ability to do what what he wants to do, he chose Jacob over Esau to be the recipient of his blessing. That blessing passed down from Abraham to Isaac and now to him. The promise was that he would be given descendants and property and the presence of God with him, that he and his family might be a blessing to the world. So it's in the book of Genesis. And it seems from the text that Jacob, he really did believe in the existence of the God of his fathers for his whole life. He believed in God's promise. But for much of Jacob's life, he lived as if any kind of blessing was going to come his way. It was going to be a result of his own doing rather than God's provision. Jacob was a man striving for control from birth. If you don't like the idea of original sin, Jacob's birth story is really not going to sit well for you. Listen to this. Jacob comes out of his mother Rebekah's womb and he's grabbing Esau by the ankle, trying to rip him back in and beat him out. This is like a zombie trying to pull someone into the grave in a horror movie. This is how Jacob was born. He comes out of his mother's womb fighting. His, literally, his name literally means in Hebrew, heel grabber. What a beautiful name. Heel grabber. Aren't you glad that our parents don't give us names according to the first thought that crosses their mind when they're born? I think we'd have a bunch of people in here who are named Dented Head. Uh, probably a good thing. Jacob's name figuratively meant deceiver. Deceiver. And that's a name that he lived up to. Jacob knew what he wanted out of life, and nothing was going to stop him from getting it. Here's a story you probably remember. Jacob and Esau are young men, and Esau comes home. He's starving after this long day of hunting out in the field. Jacob's cooked up some stew, and he says to him, you want to trade me your birthright for some stew? This is an important decision for Esau. I try not to make important decisions when I'm either hungry or tired. They usually don't work out well. Esau, he should have just offered to pay his brother for the stew, don't you think? But the text says he didn't think much of his birthright, especially when he was this hungry, I'd imagine. But Jacob, 
knew how valuable that birthright was. He'd been waiting for this moment. This is the moment he'd been hoping for. He makes this deal and Esau makes the trade. Jacob gets the birthright. And last Sunday we heard Bob share the story of how that blessing from his father finally came to fruition. So Isaac is blind, he's old, he's nearing death, and he tells Esau, hunt some game and prepare me a feast, and then I'll bless you. And so Jacob and his mother Rebekah, they catch wind of this, and they scheme up a plan to dupe Isaac into blessing Jacob instead. And so he gets this just terrible disguise. He straps some furs to his arms. The guy's got no shame. He's trying to be hairy like his brother Esau instead of the smooth-skinned tent dweller that he was. I mean, he's absolutely shameless. So Rebecca, she cooks up this feast of her own, this feast of wild game, and Jacob takes it to Isaac before Esau returns. And Isaac says, wow, this feast, it's really fat. It really came together fast. You did a great job. And Jacob responds, well, I can't take credit. The Lord your God gave me success. That's very much indicative of Jacob's relationship with God at this point. Jacob names God as the source of his blessing in lying to his own father. That really doesn't show much reverence, does it? Your God gave me success. Notice he says your God, not our God. Not my God. To Jacob, at this point in his life, God is a prop for getting what he desires. And so Isaac, he goes along with the scheme, though there are some hints in the text that he really knows what's going on, but just didn't have the guts to stop it. Jacob deceives him and gets the blessing. Now in their culture, deathbed statements had legal force. So this is a done deal. And Esau, he eventually comes back. He comes to his father with his own feast that he's prepared. And he sees what's happened. And Esau is absolutely furious. If he didn't think much of the birthright before, he's not eager to let it go now. As soon as his brother has it, Esau knows that's the only thing he cares about. It's all he can think about. And he wonders to himself, how can I get back at him? And it doesn't take him long. I'll kill him. And maybe he even thought, if I can make it look like an accident, I can get that birthright back for myself. Maybe he thought that, or maybe I've been watching too much Dateline lately. (laughs) Jacob is in a tough spot here. He's got the blessing, but Esau hates him for what he's done and wants to kill him. Jacob's got to get away. But he can't leave on bad terms with his father or he might jeopardize that inheritance. Thankfully for Jacob, once again, Rebecca is looking out for him. Jacob's not married and so she asks her husband, Can we send our son away to my brother in Haran to find a wife? I'd hate for him to break God's law and intermarry with one of those pagan women. Breaking God's law, we can't have that just like our son Esau did. And those pagan women, you know they're the worst daughters-in-law ever. And so this plays perfectly to Isaac's values. He knows happy wife, happy life, and so he's got to get a suitable daughter-in-law, so why not send Jacob away, see if this works out better. He goes for the plan. Jacob leaves before Esau kills him. He maintains relationship with his father, and he might even find a wife out of this. 
I'm certain that many of you in here are a more gracious person than I am, but I can only speak for myself. If I knew Jacob at, point, at this point in his life, I don't think I would have liked him very much. I certainly wouldn't have trusted him, and I would not have been rooting for his success. Jacob is a dishonest schemer, but things seem to be working out pretty well for him. Things seem to be going in his favor. Somebody forgot to tell him that cheaters never prosper, except in sports sometimes, and sometimes in school, and on your taxes. Uh, (laughs) And so Jacob, he makes the trip from Beersheba in Canaan, where his family lives, and he travels to Haran. It's a journey north of several hundred miles. Along the way, he's asleep, and God speaks to him in a dream. This is what God says. He says, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I'm with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. Those are some faithful words. Jacob, he wakes up from this dream, and he's struck by God's presence with him. He says, surely God has been in this place, and I didn't even know it. God's promised Jacob here that he's going to fulfill his promise. Jacob can count on it. The question is, Will Jacob, will Jacob actually trust God to do what he says he's going to do? Will Jacob believe it? God's promised that he's going to bless him, but will Jacob trust him? Jacob's response to this is to propose a deal to God. He says, okay, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household— then the Lord will be my God. He's saying, God, if you really make blessing come my way, then I'll trust you. Then you'll be my God. Seems pretty conditional to me. We'll see how God responds to this in Jacob's story. He continues on his way and he arrives in Haran, connects with his uncle Laban, meets up with his family, and falls in love with his beautiful daughter Rachel. So this was Jacob's cousin. Let's hope it was a distant relation. Uh, It's not long before they start making plans to be married. When I read this, it seems to me like God may well be going along with Jacob's proposition here. Certainly any paradigm that it's the good people who receive God's blessing doesn't, that paradigm doesn't really jive well with Jacob's story here. God certainly would have opposed Jacob's sin that drove him here. Let's get that straight. But God seems to be blessing Jacob in spite of his sin. First with his father's wealth, even though he gained it dishonestly. And then with a wife, even though he met her as he fleed from the consequences to his deception. Jacob's a rebellious person. But he receives God's blessing completely apart from his own deserving. I believe in our tradition we call that grace. At this point in his life, Jacob didn't 
trust God. He didn't worship him as God yet. But God gives him tastes of grace to show him that he really is with him and he will keep his promises. No doubt about it, God was coming after Jacob's heart and blessing him with unmerited favor was part of his method. But God has other methods of getting a hold of people. And here's the one he uses next, one that I've known well. Discipline. And as Jacob's story progresses, we see God use discipline in his life as a way of opening his eyes to his sin and self-reliance. Back to his story. Jacob and Rachel are to be married. And Laban reminds him there's a second, Rachel is his second daughter behind Leah, and there's a tradition in their culture. In their culture, normally it was the firstborn who was the first married. And so Jacob, he knew that. And so he's expecting to, put, to, pr- to pay, pardon me, a steep bride price. He'd do anything for this woman. And so Laban says seven years of labor to marry Rachel. And Jacob agrees. He works those seven years, but he is so eager for his bride that they pass in what just seems like a few days to him. He's so in love. It's no time at all. And so after those seven years, their wedding day finally comes and night falls. It's time for their first night together and Jacob's bride comes into their wedding chamber for their long-awaited first night together. In the morning, Jacob, he turns to his wife and he's absolutely shocked. (laughs) It's not his wife who's lying beside him. It's his sister-in-law, Leah. What happened? How could this happen? It hits Jacob exactly what's happened. That dishonest schemer uncle of his sent Leah into their wedding chamber under the dark of night instead of his sister that he worked seven years to marry. Jacob can't believe what's happened. He goes to his uncle. He says, what have you done to me? How could you do this? And Laban says, oh, well, don't you know, it's, it's our custom to marry off our firstborn That's why I brought Leah to you. I would have said, well, it's my custom to hit you in the face with a shovel. I mean, this is a serious deal. This is really serious. But Laban knows he's got the upper hand here, doesn't he? Jacob wants Rachel so badly. Laban can do anything he wants to him. He can hold this over his head. And so Laban says, hey, make you another deal. You finish Leah's bridal week, and I'll give you Rachel for seven more years of labor. Jacob, he's got no other options here. If he really wants to marry this woman he loves. And so he agrees to work the seven more years. Talk about getting a taste of your own medicine, Jacob. How do you like it? The deceiver has been deceived. Can you imagine how long those last seven years must have felt for him after working seven Man, 14 years in the same job, out in those fields. Imagine what must have been on Jacob's mind over those last seven years. How could Laban do this to me? What kind of person does this? How could someone be so selfish for gain that they cheat their own family? He'd feel a pit in his stomach, wouldn't he? Oh yeah, I guess I did that myself. 
the, iron of, the irony of Jacob's situation, it, it wouldn't have been lost on him that what his uncle did to him is exactly what he did to his own brother. Those seven years, that would have been a time of discipline in Jacob's life, wouldn't it? That would have been a time where he's stuck in this situation that feels absolutely unjust to him, but darn well knows he did the same exact thing to his brother. But if you continue in the story, you'll see that in the midst of the challenges and frustrations of those seven years, God remains faithful to his promise. He's with Jacob and he blesses him. With the gift of children, he causes his work to flourish. He causes Jacob's wealth to increase. God is with him in that time of discipline and blesses him in the midst of it. And so through that time, Jacob comes to see more and more that God is present in his story. He really is looking out for his welfare. So when those seven years are up, Jacob has a strong feeling that it's time to go home to Canaan, back to the land of his family. And so after this really tense period of dividing up wealth with Laban, who's not eager to see him and his family go by any means, Jacob and his family and servants, they begin the journey back to Canaan. I don't know if any of you have experienced this, but sometimes when I haven't seen people, especially family, after a long time, I can feel a little bit anxious about it. When I haven't seen them for so long, I can feel a little bit, uh, man, sorry I haven't been around more, guys. I don't know if you've ever felt that. Jacob certainly would have felt a little bit of anxiety as he headed back to Canaan about seeing his family, But I think any feelings of just general anxiety about seeing extended family would have been completely overshadowed by the dread of seeing Esau again. I mean, is this guy still going to want to kill him? That's a legitimate question that Jacob would have had. He's been away from home for 20 years. Will Esau still want to murder him? Jacob wants things to go well when he arrives home, when the two of them reunite. And so he sends some messengers ahead of him to meet up with Esau and tell him the news that Jacob's coming home. And he wants things to go well between them. He wants to repair their relationship. And so these messengers, they head out and they meet up with Esau. And then they come back to Jacob. They say, Jacob, great news. We met Esau and we told him you're coming home. Also, terrible news. He's coming out to meet you with 400 men. Probably not a greeting party. Can you imagine the fear that would have filled Jacob? He could lose everything that he's gained here. His wealth, his family. Could all be gone in an instant. And so Jacob, he's still a man with a plan when the pressure is on. And so he decides, I'll divide up my my party into two groups. This way I can send them in separate directions, and if Esau comes out to take us down, at least half of us will survive. And so he does that, and when it's done, he doesn't know what else to do. He's done everything that he can to control this situation, and so he prays. God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper I'm unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I've become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers 
with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and I will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. If you look at his prayer, this is by far the closest thing to faith that we've seen from Jacob. He's asking God for help in his time of need, which shows that he really believes God is present with him. God is able to intervene in his situation. But belief that God is able to act to fulfill his promise and faith that God is going to act to fulfill his promise, those are two different things. Jacob is not all the way there yet. If you need evidence of that, listen to what he does next. He sends ahead of him to Esau this massive peace offering. 500 livestock, over 500 cows, camels, goats, donkeys. You know what he's trying to do. He's trying to appease his brother by giving him this lavish gift before they meet up the next day. And so Jacob's attitude about this situation right now is, God, you've been faithful in my past. I know you can bail me out of this. Please do. Please do. But just in case you don't show up, I'm going to do everything I can to make this situation work out by my own doing. So it's the night before Jacob meets up with Esau, and he's camped out by himself on the banks of the Jabbok River. You know how he feels. His mind's going a million miles an hour, thinking about what, what might happen the next day. Jacob thought he was spending the night alone, but a visitor shows up to him in the darkness, and in an instant, his mental, spiritual, and emotional wrestling, it suddenly turns physical. God himself, in the form of an angel, has come to him and picked a fight. And the two of them are rolling in the dirt in an all-out brawl, trying to kick each other's teeth in. Little did Jacob know, his life had been building toward this moment. His past, think about it, it was marked by scheming and maneuvering to get what he wanted out of life. He'd been wrestling to create for himself the life he desired by his own doing. He'd been wrestling with Esau from the moment he was born. He was wrestling with Laban, but in this moment, God wakes him up to the truth that ultimately he has been wrestling with him. He's been wrestling with God himself. And so Jacob and the angel, they battle it out all night. And right before day breaks, the angel still hasn't been able to best him. And so he touches Jacob's hip. And with that small movement, he just wrenches it out of place. That's a solid submission move right there. But instead of tapping out, instead of yelling uncle, Jacob refuses to give in. He yells out, I will not let you go until you bless me. And that's when the fight is over. Everything in Jacob's story, experiences of undeserved blessing and grace, times of discipline to humble him, no matter how much they hurt, convict him of his own sin, this all-out battle with God, all those things brought him to this moment when those words would come out of his mouth. God was present with Jacob in all that he went through. 
And in this moment, he got a hold of Jacob right here and right now and brought him to the realization that the blessing he sought in life was never going to come from his own striving. It could only come from God. Only God could truly bless him and only that blessing from God could ultimately satisfy him. If he looked for it anywhere else, he'd keep wrestling, he'd keep striving, he'd never get there. Only God could bless him. And Jacob wasn't letting go of God. Jacob was finally going to trust him. The God of his fathers was going to be his God. And so the angel said to him, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And God blessed him right there. Jacob, that name represented independence from God. The deceiver who did what he had to to get what he wanted out of life. But Israel, that name represented reliance on God. What a great name for the people of faith who would follow after him. Those who overcome and the struggles of life through faith in God, Israel. He left that place to be reunited with Esau and was received graciously with open arms. God had blessed Esau too, and he no longer held a grudge against Jacob. God had been present and gracious in both of their lives. That's a story, huh? God shaped one of the most infamous manipulators of all time into the man who would be representative of all who would follow after him in faith. Those who overcome in the struggles of life through faith in God. Let's think just for a minute about God's process of forming faith in Jacob. If we look back over the course of his life, we see that Jacob believed in God's existence and God's ability to act, but he essentially lived in unfaith, didn't he? He only really trusted himself. He didn't trust God, even though he knew he existed, even though he knew God was present. He didn't trust him. And that seemed to work out okay for Jacob for a time, didn't it? God blessed him in some ways in spite of his sin, His self-reliance, it never seemed to deliver what he ultimately hoped it would. And seeking to gain the life he desired, Jacob destroyed relationships. He caused himself a lot of pain and a lot of stress. But God cared enough about Jacob to humble him through discipline. And he eventually brought him to that moment where he came to realize he's got to stop wrestling. He's exhausted. He was a lousy God for himself. Self-reliance is damaging. It's draining. It's a terrifying way to live. Jacob was going to trust God as his God. How about you? Maybe you believe that he exists. Maybe 
you believe that he's present in your life, that he's really there. But do you trust him as the God of your life? Or are you living in self-reliance? When push comes to shove, is your faith in yourself? I believe that God is present and involved in our lives. And like Jacob, I believe that God is eager to bless you. Now, if your health and wealth gospel radar is blaring off that sirens going right now, wanting to yell out heretic, hold on one second. Listen to me. God desires relationship with each and every one of us. And he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to us from heaven to earth in the midst of our broken world, in the midst of the sin that affects each and every one of us every moment of our lives. He sent his own son to enter into our story that we who look to him in faith might be forgiven and brought into right relationship with him now and forever. God is eager to bless you if you will trust him in faith. That's why Christ died on the cross. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Ephesians. In Jesus Christ, those who trust him have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. There is nothing that we lack now and forever. If you're in Christ, you are the chosen child of God's blessing. He's chosen you to receive it. Are you going to trust him? Will you rest in his forgiveness? Will you enjoy life in relationship with God, not by your own doing, but all because of grace? Will you accept that gift of blessing that God extends to you and his son Jesus Christ through faith in him? You receive all of that. You receive his spirit inside of you that you might walk out God's purposes for your life. That spirit is a guarantee of the hope that's yours to come. You're going to be a part of God's family forever. Your future is in him. Those are blessings that you want. Those are blessings that only God can give. And they only come by faith. If you have never trusted Christ before, why wait? Let's make today the day. I will meet you right down there after this, after this service is concluded. There will be other members of the pastoral staff today with me. Let's make today that day. The hope that is ours in Jesus Christ extends forever. If you're a Christ follower, but you find yourself in a time where you're wrestling with self-reliance, as we all inevitably do from time to time, trust me, I'm there myself sometimes. Let me encourage you. Remember the bigness of God's grace for you in Jesus Christ. Remember how unchanging it is. It never had anything to do with you and it coming into your life and it's not up to you to keep it. So take a deep breath. You're a terrible God for yourself. But you don't have to be God for yourself. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you've got it all. So rest in the freedom and peace that are in him. He's in control and he is a much better God than you are. So that hope of ours it lasts forever. When we read these verses in this morning's passage, we see Jacob come to the end of his life. It was a life that was full of challenges. And a lot of those challenges continued after he came to faith. They were still there. Jacob, he went through some traumatic stuff. He made some pretty boneheaded decisions. But as we read in this morning's passage, when he came to his last days, he could see God's faithfulness over his past. And so he desired to honor God in every decision he made. 
until he took his last breath. He trusted God with his future. Let's learn that lesson from Israel himself. Put down your self-reliance. Trust God. If you do, when your last days come, you too will be able to rest and worship God as you know his faithfulness over your past is carrying into your future. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. You speak to us in powerful ways. You're a God who's gracious to us beyond what we deserve. You give us unmerited blessing. You direct us back to you in the midst of our own self-reliance, in the midst of our sin. God, I pray that you would not that you would not let us have our own way, that you would love us enough to break us of our self-reliance and our sin, no matter how bad it hurts, God, that we might love you, that we might know the depth of your love for us. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who you sent to us, that we who look to him in faith might receive membership in your own family. Every spiritual blessing, God, comes from you. There's nothing that we lack. And so I pray that you would help us to open up our hands, those moments that we just clench onto life and think that it depends on us. Help us to open up our hands and trust you in faith. Would your spirit work in a powerful way in our lives that people would see the faith in us and know that it's something that can only come from you, God, by your work in our lives. And I pray that you would prepare us to make an account for that hope that is inside of us. In Jesus' name, amen.